This uh, episode is uh, part one of Stone Number 10, which I'm uh, calling Americanisms. Um, Senator Tom Daschle, how many of you remember him? He spoke before both houses of Congress on September 12th, the day after 9-11. He had a very rousing speech, very motivational, you know, trying to inspire the country, uh, inspire his fellow politicians. And in his speech, he quoted a verse from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. And this is that verse. The bricks have fallen down, but we'll, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. Sounds good, doesn't it? Like, wow, yeah, they, they, they pulled down the Twin Towers, but we're going to rebuild. Fortunately, Mr. Daschle did not take time to put this verse in its context. Context matters. Because beginning in verse 8, here's what it says. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. See, it's a statement of Israel being arrogant, thinking that the judgment that they're about to experience, they can overcome it and they can they can rebuild their nation. He should have paid attention to the context. It's a very foolish verse for him to pull out of its context and use like it was something positive. It's not. And it's not that this nation is a Christian nation that was judged by 9-11. That's not true. And I'm about to talk about that. What follows is going to be shocking to many listeners in this country that hear this podcast. The subject is the United States of America and Christianity. And once again, here are some authors I suggest reading. Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, Nathan Hatch, George Marsden, Stephen Nichols, John Fia, F-E-A, uh, E. Brooks uh, Hallfield, and Cushing Strout. Some of these authors are Christians, but most importantly, all of them are professional historians. This is important because how they handle the details of history are not driven by some personal agenda, as is so often the case by history spinsters who pick pieces and fragments to support what they want to believe. These historians tell the whole truth, which they're committed to tell by their profession. In other words, these authors aren't preachers trying to stir up the faithful to some end. They are professional historians committing to tell the facts of history. Clear, simple facts. That's what good historians do. They tell the good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever it is. They don't twist it. They don't make it fit with their theology or what they want. They tell the truth. So, one very critical historical fact is that the colonies were populated mostly by people who were Christianized, not born again by the Spirit. For the fact is, this has always been the case. Not everyone who came to the New World were actual born again by the Spirit followers of Jesus of Nazareth. That's always been true. 
Sitting in church, going to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. Receiving the Holy Spirit does. So, um, thus establishing a Christianized society is not the same thing as creating a, quote, Christian nation. Every European nation, for that matter, can claim to be a Christian nation, for all of Europe was Christianized. The vast majority of people who came to colonize this continent did not come from Islamic, Hindu, or Buddhist parts of the world. They came from Christianized Europe. And living in a Christianized nation or sitting in a church no more makes a person a born-again Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Further, although the men who founded this nation are portrayed as being brilliantly intelligent, morally outstanding, and some sort of superheroes, they were nothing of the sort. At their core, they were godless men, the godless men, and political politicians. Facts of history are that the founders of this nation weren't Jews, Hindus, Muslims, or Buddhists, but neither were they born again by the Spirit followers of Jesus of Nazareth. They wanted to be moral people, even though there's plenty of historical evidence that many of them weren't all that moral. For example, Ben Franklin. He's a good example of the kind of morality most people of the time were seeking. He placed great value on self-improvement. He believed that integrity and moral responsibility, not a real relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, were the, were the backbone of a successful life in a strong community. Reading and reflection led him to formulate his own list of 13 personal virtues, not from scripture, which he then attempted to master. In other words, he came up with his own definition of what morality is. The kindest that can be said about the founders is that some of them had a belief in some sort of vague higher power, and some did not. For all of these were enlightened, quotation marks, men, products of the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. And the enlightened and the rational do not need or want a specific higher power. Just read some of the philosophers from the Enlightenment. Since the printing press, everyone read the Bible in the same way everyone read Shakespeare or other classics. Politicians quoted from both, as long as it fit their purposes, like Dashiell did, like President Obama did at the Sandy Hooks Memorial. The Bible was simply considered by the general population to be one of the many pieces of classic literature. And even though many believe the Bible was, quote, holy scripture, the practice of their lives, the practice of their lives was to ignore or rationalize what the Bible said. Remember, we can tell a tree by its fruit. And the fruit is not the ministry. The fruit is their character, their life, what they're doing. That's what Psalm 1 says, a tree is. People went to church, but church wasn't in the people, which is one reason we had the first Great Awakening, which involved lots of people who went to church every Sunday. The founding fathers were no different. Most of them, even less so, for although some of them very occasionally attended a church, maybe prayed, read, and quoted the Bible, or made references to a higher power, they clearly did not know Jesus and Nazareth personally. 
They were simply Christianized along with the rest of society. In fact, they, it's really hard to find them even mentioning the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus said, Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. None of the founding fathers and only very few of the others who gave leadership to the rebellion, I'll say more about that in a moment, can pass even this meager test that Jesus is giving. You'd be hard-pressed to find many, if any, of these men referencing the name of Jesus. Some few of these men were atheists. Some others were deists and universalists, like Franklin. Most were simply agnostics. Car salesmen are car salesmen. Lawyers are lawyers. And politicians are politicians. And politicians know how to manipulate people. It's one of the important tools to being a good politician. We should know that, especially from current events. Thomas Jefferson is an example of what I'm talking about. He wrote his own version of the Bible. I have a copy of it. Essentially, it is made up of the moral teachings of Jesus. Nothing from the Old Testament, none of Jesus' miracles, and nothing about the crucifixion, resurrection, or the end times. For Jefferson considered Jesus to simply be a moral man who gave people an example of what it means to be a person of, quote, faith. Where a person plants, they reap. You plant green beans, and you get green beans, not corn. So to the flesh, so to the world, so to the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, and one does not get godliness and the kingdom. So to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and one does not get the tree of life. The founders sowed to the enlightenment and to the age of reason. Thus they believed utterly in man's knowledge, in man's wisdom, in man's abilities, in man's moral goodness. The deists believed that a higher power created and then left town, leaving the world in man's hands to figure out his laws and employ them. Couldn't, it couldn't be any more opposite of biblical Christianity. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the one true living God, did not invent democracy. He also did not create man to govern himself by majority vote. That is a good example of how bad that could be in Numbers chapter 14. He also, what he did invent, I'm sorry, he invented monarchy. The religiously pagan, sexually perverted, and arrogantly pompous Greeks invented democracy. Remember, does a bad tree produce good fruit? Does the church in this country actually think that something godly can come from the, such a filthy source as the Greeks? Paul ministered in Athens. That was his worst ministry. The philosophers there mocked him. Philip Schaff, the 19th century church historian, wrote the following, quote, the, Bible, the church, embracing the mass of the population of the Roman Empire, from Caesar to the meanest slave, and living amidst all its institutions, received into her bosom vast deposits of foreign material from the world and from heathenism. Although ancient Greece and Rome have fallen forever, the spirit of Greco-Roman paganism is not extinct. 
it still lives in the natural heart of man, which at this day, as much as ever, needs the regeneration of the Spirit of God. It lives also in many idolatrous and superstitious usages of the Greek and Roman churches, against which the pure spirit of Christianity has instinctively protested from the beginning and will protest till all remains of gross and refined idolatry shall be outwardly as well as inwardly overcome. The biblical truth is humans were not made for democracy, and what is best for man is not determined by men. Neither are personal freedoms and individual rights the highest pinnacles for all mankind. Man was designed to be in subjection to the bridegroom king. Human beings simply were not designed to run their own lives. They were designed by the Son of God to crave, to crave his leadership, which man not only does not crave, but violently hates. Contrary to the Declaration of Independence, the Creator, whoever that is, at least not the real one, Jesus of Nazareth, did not endow men with rights. However, the living God does expect responsibilities from all human beings. The Bible never, never, never addresses rights. It always addresses our responsibilities. Again, it was the pagan, perverted, pompous Greeks who believed themselves to be so smart who came up with the demonic idea of democracy. And it was the worldly philosophers of the Renaissance and beyond who promoted it. Sadly, although Americans, including many in the church, consider democracy a good thing, it is not a living God thing. Frankly, Christians should be ashamed to talk about the rebellion against England and democracy as if, as if these are the doings of the living God. Calling the war between the colonies and the King of England a revolution is to put a political spin on this event. The truth is, this was a revolution. It was a rebellion against the king who was doing no serious wrong initially to the colonists. Um, let's see, a couple of things I want to continue to say here. Let's see. Freedom of religion also is not a divine concept, and thus it is not a blessing from the living God. It is an antichrist concept. This one thing alone has done huge damage to the church in this country. Thus it was the founders' intention to weaken the church, for they had absolutely no desire to establish a Christian nation, since they themselves were not Christians. The founders had the New Age and the Enlightened view of establishing the nation without any religion, but one in which men were free to do whatever they wanted without the restraints of the church, of apostolic Christianity, of the Bible. Ideas they acquired from the, the godless philosophers who hated and attacked Christianity that the founders were actually inspired by. Freedom of religion has always weakened the church, and we know this from history. For by about the third generation of church leaders, there began to be compromise with the Roman world in order to avoid persecution. And when a worldly form of Christianity was made the official religion of Rome, a form of religious freedom which stopped the persecution, the church and European society plummeted into a great darkness 
called the Dark Ages. The truth is that the church was never intended to be acceptable to the surrounding culture and society. Jesus prophesied and promised that those who were faithful to him would suffer for being faithful to him. Matthew 10, John 15. Even more, suffering for righteousness, for Jesus himself, and for his kingdom is one of the eight foundational principles of the constitution of Jesus' kingdom. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Fact. The lack of real suffering in the lives of those who claim to belong to Jesus of Nazareth in this country due to freedom of religion has absolutely debilitated and enfeebled the church in this country. Truth. Persecution always purifies the church. Lack of persecution always makes the church pitiful and powerless. Now, as for the founding of this nation, here are just a few historical facts which seem to get left out when people tell this nation's history. The King of England fought a very expensive war called the French and Indian War. One of the points of this war was to stop Catholic France from taking control of the Protestant colonies. Thus, this was a war which benefited the vast majority of the colonists. All the King of England asked after he won the war of the colonists was to repay some of what it cost him to fight this war. Frankly, that doesn't seem unreasonable, much less enslaving, as many of the, those the rhetoric of the day. The colonists were quite spoiled, having already lots of freedoms due to living in the colonies. What, they even paid fewer taxes than people living in England who had parliamentary representation. And yet the colonists got all uppity all about being asked to pay some of the costs of a war from which they benefited. Then, to justify their arrogance and spoiled attitude, as well as being infected with the worldly yeast of the Enlightenment philosophers, the rhetoric began. Rhetoric such as the king's taxing of the colonists was his attempt to enslave them. Give me a break. Rhetoric for such a political freedom replaced, replacing freedom. Then, in addition to the teachings and philosophies of the godless philosophers having a great impact on people who supposedly read the Bible, all sorts of unbiblical teaching permeated this rebellion profoundly influencing huge segments of the society. Actor Henry, who some say was a devout man, is just one obvious example. And I'll begin next time talking about him.
Just a voice. 